in, in the past 12 months or so, I've had uh, the sad opportunities to speak with three or four uh, men who attempted suicide. Uh, in a couple of the cases, they ended up succumbing to their injuries, and I could not speak to them directly, but I spoke with their families. Uh, in another case, I spoke with a man who uh, was left uh, permanently uh, paralyzed as a result of his attempt. And I had an opportunity to speak with him over a course of a few weeks about why he did what he did. And, and the common thing I hear from the families and even from the people um, who attempted to self-harm is that they had lost hope. They had lost hope and they could not face life anymore. You know, it's actually true. We cannot live without hope. Life has no meaning. Life has no purpose. Life has no joy when there is no hope. But what is hope? But even to begin this discussion, we realize that we are at a disadvantage because the way that we talk about hope in our culture and the way that we talk about hope in our language, in the English language, we mean by hope a wishing for an uncertain future outcome. That's what we mean by hope. So we might say, I hope it rains more this year than the last year. Or we might say, I hope my team wins the championship. So when we, in our culture and in our language, talk about hope, we are talking about expressing a desire for something that may happen, may not. I wish it would happen, but who knows? That's how we understand hope. But in the New Testament, hope actually has a very different meaning, and it's rather unfortunate that that word that has such a different meaning is translated as hope into English. Because in the New Testament, hope is actually a settled reality, a settled future reality reaching back into our present. Well, let me give you an example. Uh, let's say you are a young lady and a young man has proposed to you. And uh, he's given you the ring and you said yes. The date is set. You've booked the caterer, you've arranged everything. Now, you have to go shop for a dress. That's the certainty of the future coming into your present and changing your actions. You see, women don't usually go shopping for a wedding dress hoping, you know, if I just buy a dress, maybe I'll find a husband, right? You've already found that person. And because the future is certain, then you act accordingly. That's the biblical idea of Hope, a settled future reality that reaches back into the present to change us today. And indeed, if you remember from last week in chapter 23, verse 6, we saw that hope was precisely the center of Paul's defense. In chapter 23, verse 6, Paul said, It is with the respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And even in this chapter, in verse 15, Paul defends himself saying that having a hope in God, that there will be a resurrection of both the just 
and the unjust. So do you see that Paul was sustained by the hope of resurrection through his present fear, through his hardship, and through his disappointment? Hope of the resurrection, the settled reality of the future, reached back into his present to uphold him through his hardship, disappointment, and fear. And that is indeed what we see, Paul experiencing fear, hardship, and disappointment. And the first thing we see is justice denied, justice denied. Now, you remember from the last chapter, the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, he transferred Paul to the care of Felix, the governor, with the letter. And Felix received Paul as his prisoner. Antonius Felix was born a slave. And he, as a, mourn, as a man who was born a slave, he had all the hunger and cravings of a man who was born into humbling circumstances. He first married the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. He divorced her and married a second wife. Uh, we don't know. History doesn't tell us much about his second wife, but we know that he married at least three times because he divorced his second wife uh, because he uh, fell in love with a married woman. He seduced her and, and, and took her away from her husband and married Drusilla, who was the daughter of Herod, that Herod from Acts chapter 12, who killed James, that Herod who acted with such arrogance before the Lord that he, he suffered God's judgment and died a very painful death. In other words, Felix was a social climber, man with an insatiable hunger and thirst. And the year AD 52, Felix became the governor of Judea because uh, his brother Pallas was a close friend of the emperor Claudius. Uh, so this is what you might call a nepotism appointment. Uh, so Felix became the governor of Judea in AD 52. In AD 55, an Egyptian man led a massive messianic uprising against the Romans. Uh, this Egyptian man himself escaped. And you might remember when Paul was first arrested, Lysias thought that Paul was the Egyptian man. Uh, at any rate, this Egyptian man himself escaped, but Felix he treated the followers of this Egyptian messianic pretender with stunning brutality that it turned the opinions of the Jewish people decisively against him. In AD 58, Felix murdered the Jewish high priest Jonathan who criticized his policies. So the first century Roman historian Tacitus writes, that Felix exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. In AD 59, the Jews complained so much about Felix that Nero recalled Felix to Rome to answer for his abuse. Now, I have to tell you, it's not a good look when Nero thinks you've gone too far. 
So the question is this, isn't it? Can Paul expect any justice with Felix as his judge? And I think already we are beginning to recognize the prospect of Paul receiving any kind of justice is fairly remote. But nevertheless, Felix was a Roman governor, and he followed the Roman law, and he ordered Paul's accusers to appear. You see, the Roman law allowed the accused to face his accuser. And the absence of the accuser at the trial was a very serious breach of the Roman law that would tilt the case in favor of the accused. And that brings us to this chapter. Chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. But did you notice? The people who initially brought the accusation against Paul, they're not there. Why is that? I think what happened is that the Jewish authorities, Ananias, they did their own investigation. And they realized that the accusation against Paul could not be substantiated. And they thought better than to bring unreliable witness to the stand. And so they didn't bring them. You know, that's a time-honored tactic, isn't it? If you have a less than reliable witness, you don't make him take the stand. And so instead, instead of bringing the accusers, they brought a high-powered attorney one who was trained in public speaking. And in verse 2, we read that Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, since through you, uh, Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Well, let's stop right there. What peace? What reform? You remember, Felix was a hated figure. He dealt out his power with such cruelty and brutality that the the public opinion of the Jewish people had already turned against him. So why is Tertullus saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since you by your foresight uh, reforms are being made for this nation. Uh, what he's doing is um, he can argue the case, so he's using flattery to get Felix on his side. And notice that his case also is without substance. Now, if you remember back in chapter 21, when the accusations were initially made against Paul, in chapter 21, verse 28, This is what the accusers said. Paul even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. But now, in chapter 24, verse 6, Tertullus says, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized them. Do you see the difference? The accuser said of Paul, he he did it, he defiled the temple. But since then, they've done their investigation and they realized the charge cannot be substantiated. So they changed the story. He tried to do it. He tried to defile the temple, and we stopped him. Now, at this point, Felix has to give a judgment, and I think we can already see 
what justice in this situation means. You remember, Claudius sent Paul with a letter stating he's done nothing wrong. The Sanhedrin Pharisees who examined Paul declared him innocent. The accusers were not present. Tertullus could not prove his case. Clearly, Paul was innocent of the accusation. But what does Felix do? Felix keeps Paul in prison for two years. Why? Verse 26, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And by the way, history records that Felix's love of bribery was well known. So he keeps Paul in prison knowing there's no evidence against him, but rather every available evidence points to his innocence. He keeps Paul imprisoned, hoping that money would be given him by Paul. And when in the year 59, Nero recalled Felix, we read here that he left Paul imprisoned, desiring to do the Jews a favor. Now remember, it was the Jews who complained to Nero, and that's why Felix was recalled. And as Felix is being recalled to face Nero, he's trying to placate the Jews by doing what they wanted him to do, and that's why he leaves Paul imprisoned. So do you see what is happening to Paul? These are difficult days, days filled with fear, hardship, and disappointment, and justice was denied for him. And that brings us to the second observation this morning, integrity displayed, integrity displayed. Now notice how Paul begins his defense in verse 10. Paul says, Knowing that for many years that you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now compare that to the words of Tertullus, full of flattery, untruthful statements. But Paul, he is respectful, but he simply states the truth. And you know what Paul is saying? You know, I know you are in the position of judging me, and you've been at this for a while. That's all he's saying. He is polite, but he states the truth. Christians should reject both gossip and flattery. What's gossip? Gossip is saying something behind uh, people's back, what you would never say to their face. What's flattery? Flattery is saying something to their face that you would never say behind their back. Gossip and flattery both are untruthful speech. And gossip and flattery are both unbecoming of those who follow Jesus who said in John chapter 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. You see, as people who follow the Lord of the truth, there needs to be integrity in our speech. Neither gossip, neither flattery. And you see here that Paul's speech has integrity. Secondly, Paul's ministry has integrity. Look at verses 24 and 25. After uh, 
Felix puts off the judgment, we read that after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Well, let's stop right there and think about what is happening here. Paul is being held as a prisoner under the authority of this wicked judge. But Paul did not mince words. You see, Felix was not a man known for righteousness, and he was not a man known for self-control. And Paul is discussing with him about righteousness, about self-control, and the coming judgment. That is why when Felix hears Paul, we read, Felix was alarmed. You see, what Paul was doing with Felix was that he told Felix face to face, you are unrighteous. You have shown yourself a full of a man full of lust and greed. There is judgment coming for you. You must repent and you must turn to Jesus for salvation. That's what Paul is telling Felix. And that is why we read that Felix was alarmed. Why? Because Paul was telling me, you will face God's judgment. You must repent. You must turn to Jesus. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. How many have perished saying, now is not the time to deal with God. I'll do it later. I'm too busy today tomorrow. But you know, each time you say, not today, but later, it just makes it that much harder for you to respond in the right way the next time. You know, isn't it fascinating? Phyllis talked with Paul for two years. It says that he summoned Paul often. Can you imagine? You have the apostle Paul teaching you the Bible in a private classroom for two years. Which of us here would not give an arm and a leg for that opportunity? But Felix, after two years of having Paul, Paul, as his private tutor and chaplain and minister, after two years, Felix proves himself the man who said every single time, not today, tomorrow, not today, tomorrow. Now is not the time to deal with God, but I will do it later. Now is not the right time. What's fascinating is that there has to be at some level some spiritual interest in his heart. Otherwise, why would you keep that up for two years? But surely Jesus had people like Felix in mind when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 about the different ways that people respond to God's word. Jesus said, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
That's what happened with Felix. He kept saying, not today, tomorrow, not now, later. But nevertheless, Paul and his ministry had integrity. He addressed Felix precisely where he needed to be addressed, and he told him, you will face God's judgment. Repent and believe. Thirdly, Paul's conduct has integrity. Look at verse 26. Felix hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. You know what that means? Paul knew during those two years that he could buy his freedom with a little bribe. Can you imagine? Well, I'm sure Paul was a much better person than I am, but I can imagine if I had been in his shoes, I would have been mightily tempted to justify a little bribe. You know, let's think of the greater good. I'm wasting my life away. I'm missing great opportunities for ministry by sitting here doing nothing. Maybe this is just a necessary evil. Maybe just a little flexibility on my account. Maybe that will open many doors for fruitful ministry. But Paul doesn't do that, knowing for two years, knowing that a little bribe would secure his freedom. Why? Well, as Paul himself defended, he worshiped God according to the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets reveal God as one who hates bribery. Our God hates bribery. And so Paul, he would not transgress God's law to make his life easy. And he will not take sinful shortcuts, but he would rather endure injustice. He would rather endure hardship with integrity. And so the question to ask is this. Justice has been denied to Paul. He is experiencing hardship, disappointment. So what gave him the power to speak, to serve, and to act with integrity and never sway or never turn? What gave him the power to do this? And that brings us to the third and the last point. It was the hope treasured that enabled him. It was the hope of resurrection that Paul treasured that enabled them to endure hardship, difficulties, fear with integrity. Now notice how Paul defends himself in verses 14 and 15. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You know, when Paul says that I cling to the hope of resurrection, what he is not saying is, he is not saying, you know, I really don't know what happens after death. Gee, I wish there's something more after the death, but I really just don't know. You know I hope something good happens. I'm just going to think positively and just, just, just carry on. That's not what Paul is saying. You see, for Paul, 
Jesus' death and resurrection according to the law and the prophets. Because the law and the prophets promised that though we are sinners, God who is merciful will send an atonement for our sins. That he will deal with us not as our sins deserved, but according to his grace. And so just as the law and the prophets have taught, God sent his son who with this righteous life and death atoned for our sins. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it settled once and for all what will happen to the believers. So Paul knew that because of the law and the prophets and because of what Jesus has done, because he died and he rose, Paul knew that people who worship and follow the Lord Jesus will be raised to live glorified, blessed, eternal life with Jesus. And Paul also knew that the unbelievers will also be resurrected, not for glory, not for honor, but for dishonor. You see, God, God will see to it that all who have perverted justice for Paul will receive justice from God. And that liberated Paul and that liberates us from the desire to seek revenge when we are wronged. And it also liberates us from despair when we think justice has been denied us. Lately, I've been reading a lot about scandals uh, in Christian churches. And very often, these scandals have to do with churches' miserable response to, for example, women that are abused by their husbands. And so often, churches will tell these abused women who have been injured, who have been wronged, it's wrong for you to pursue justice, but if you are a true Christian, you will forgive and move on. That is absolutely wrong. It is righteous to seek justice. And without justice, the person that is injured, the person who has suffered wrong, will have tremendously difficult time finding healing. And so the desire for justice is a righteous desire, it's a godly desire. And because of that, when we suffer a circumstances and experience where we feel like justice has been denied us, it's a tremendously burdensome experience. It, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's the kind of experience that breaks you. And in situations like that, we can do one of two things. We can be so enraged by the injustice, the suffering that we have experienced, that we plot revenge or we sink into despair but knowing who God is and knowing God's heart liberates us one God God is not okay when we suffer injustice it, it does not sit right with him to see his children being denied justice and one day, 
he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous, the righteous, his people, the glory and honor, and all those who have hurt, injured, they will also be raised. And from God, they will receive nothing more, nothing less than fairness, justice. And so knowing that God, that in God, justice is actually not denied us, but it is delayed. Knowing that it liberates us from the temptation of seeking revenge and it saves us from despair. And know this, that is why Paul was able to let go of bitterness, anger, but rather act with confidence, with kindness, with integrity. But there is also flip side, isn't there? And I would say this is the more important part of it. The hope of resurrection reaches into our present life. And it tells us, you know, you and I, we experience much that is wrong in this world. We suffer from other people's sins. But isn't it also true that we too are sinners. We too have sinned against God and we too have sinned against other people. We are sinners and we deserve God's justice. But God, being full of grace and mercy, He did not give us justice. He did not treat us as our sins deserve, but He treated us with mercy. Jesus received the judgment that, that were ours. Jesus died. And more than that, Jesus rose, that with Jesus we might be declared righteous. And what that means is, is that we as believers, we live with this comforting assurance that we are forgiven, we are justified, and that our resurrection is a settled reality. And the settled future reaches back into our present and it changes us. That's why in verses 14 and 15, Paul talks about his hope in the resurrection of the dead. And then in verse 16, he says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now that... That is the source of Paul's strength. That is the source of Paul's patience, his grace, and his integrity. No one can live long without hope. And in this world full of troubles, wishful thinking can only take us so far. But there is hope that can sustain us through every darkness, through every trial, and through every disappointment. And that hope is that Jesus rose and he lives. And you too, you too will rise victoriously over your trials, and you too will live. And on that day, on that day, God, God will give you glory and joy, the kind of such 
amazing depth and profundity that will wipe away every tear from your eyes and will erase every bitter memory. That's your hope. Cling to it. Lean into it. Treasure it. The hope of resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you for your instruction this morning, and we pray that that your grace, your truth, and most importantly, the hope of resurrection will sustain us in our lives' many trials. Lord, we suffer. We are often wounded. We despair. We grieve. Help us then to be sustained by your promises and of your, uh, of your accomplishments, to know that Jesus rose and that we too rise. We too will rise into glory and joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.